Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Dan. If I had to guess, it sounded almost like you were eating an apple. Mm, no, that was just the um, that was the sound of uh, the men working on the chain gang. Uh, no, it was the sound of these headphones. You see the. Oh, it sounded crunchy like an apple. Speaking mm, of a chain gang, I, I just showed my son uh, uh, Cool Hand Luke. Cool Head Luke? Yeah. What does that mean? It's a, it's a great movie with Paul Newman. Have you seen it? Oh, Cool Hand Luke, yes. Yeah. Yes. Can your son eat 50 eggs? Uh, no, but that's what started us... Um, Thinking can, or thinking about watching it. <laughs> well, no, I, I had, uh, we were talking about, cause one of the things that we're trying now for some mornings before school is he is giving him hard boiled eggs and he ate two of them and he said, Oh, those are so good. I could eat, I could eat 10 of those. I said, do you think you could eat 50? Mm-hmm. He says, no, oh, no, I, I mean, I could probably eat 50. I said, there's no way you could eat 50. No. And I said, no. there's only one man who could eat 50 and then voila. But it's a great movie. It holds up. It does hold up. Yeah. It is a good movie. And at the end of it, when we finished it, he looked at me, he says, 10 out of 10. Hmm. And he says, and now that song just makes me feel really sad. You know, I, the song I, with the little guitar, the sort of wandering melody. Yeah. 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 I played, uh, I played that song and I played the role of Cool Hand Luke in a play one time years and years ago in the nineties, a friend of mine by the name of Michael Chick, uh, wrote a play and cool hand. Luke was one of the characters in the play. Was this like uh, before the events of the movie? No, it was, you know, uh, Michael was a experimental play, right? An actor. And so it was, um, cool hand. Luke's, presence in the timeline of the play was more of an art it was more art writing than it was that the play was set in the 50s or whatever. oh i i get it i see uh but i did uh let's see i did a couple of songs in that play i did um uh what is the song i'm trying to think of um civil war no, no, but I did, I did do the, I sat and, you know, did the kind of like finger picking guitar and I, I got to dress all in denim, which of course was nice, <laughs> but it was, but the play was a disaster. <laughs> Why? And, Why? And, well, I, the play opened and on opening night, um, I was at one point like on stage and in a, in a closet, but it was visible to the audience that I was in the closet <laughs> yeah. and I had some lines <laughs> And uh-huh. I kind of forgot them, and then someone else forgot their lines, and then, a, I don't know, it felt like a light fell from the rafters, and then, you know, there, somebody, there was a gunfight, but the blood packets all exploded too early. I mean, by the end of the night, Michael said, and still says to this day, that he felt that at the at the end of the play, that he was going to need to leave Seattle and never return. <laughs> It was that bad. Yeah, and I and I was so embarrassed for myself. I also felt like, well, I'll never get on stage again. Like I'll never, it was I'll never that, be in a. Really, it was that bad. Well, the thing is, Michael was a great actor and a great playwright, and it was it was a it was part of my life or a time in my life where I knew it. I knew at least as many, um, like 
actors and playwrights as I did musicians. Yeah. And, um, and I think I was always, I was always a musician within that culture. Nobody ever thought of me as a actor or a playwright, but we all kind of collaborated on each other's stuff. And, and, uh, and we, and the, the thing was we went to plays all the time because everybody we knew, uh, was writing plays and, and putting plays on. Yeah. So this was in a, this was at a little theater called Wiggly World, but it was <laughs> a little theater, but you know, you could fit 80 people in there. Yeah. And, and the 80 people that were there were all people that mattered to us. You know, it, it was we, because, because it was one of those arts cultures where you're, there are 150 people making art for 150 other people. And, um, and so, yeah, the play, I mean, it never, the play never ran again. It opened and closed this night. It was that big of a, a wreck that, that we never put it on a second time. And I think when, when, it, when the, before the curtain went up, Michael imagined that this was his triumph and that, because I, I, you know, I, I don't want to give you the impression that we were like 14 years old and putting on a play in our neighbor's garage. Like we were in our late twenties and this was, uh, this, this was the kind of art we were pouring our heart and soul into. And and we were grownups and everybody that was coming to the plays, they were all grownups too. Right. So to have a, to open a play like this, it was on all of our minds like, well, maybe this, maybe this is the one, maybe this goes to Broadway. Oh yeah. And, uh, maybe this is the thing that gets made into a movie or, you know, we, our ambitions were, were through the roof. Right. And so to, to be a part of a production that, that came crashing down around us. I mean, I think at one point we had to start a scene over (laughs) during, during the play, like while it was going there's no accounting for this because like I say, everybody in, involved was, was very professional. They had done many, many, many productions that had run for weeks. Um, it just was an ill fated, ill fated moment. Anyways, from that time, as much as I love cool hand, Luke, I cannot think of the character. I cannot quote, no one can eat 50 eggs or any other of the great, the 50 great quotes from that movie. Right. Without having like a tinge of personal regret at having done, at having been a part and partly responsible for such a disaster. And also just like the, the ultimate cringe of, of just remembering that night, maybe one of the biggest onstage disasters of any of our lives. Uh. And for all I know, it was, for all I know, it was recorded like, because at the time Wiggly World was a film production place as well as a theater. And I mean, they might've been rolling cameras on it. It may exist in the world somewhere. Like this is still out there somewhere. It's not, uh, I've never seen it. I don't think it, I don't think it would ever get shown. I'm pretty sure the tapes were destroyed if they were, if there were tapes, but. You know, you, nothing ventured, nothing gained. You got to take those risks. That is so true. But when you're in a play and there's like eight people involved, all it takes is three things to go wrong. 
<laughs> and it's a ca- it's cascading, you know, it's a cascading wrong. That the that but has that tarnished completely tarnished your whole perspective now on Cool Hand Luke as a film? Mm. Like you can't hear the song, you can't watch it, you can't think about Fifty Eggs without thinking about the humiliation of that evening. No, just a just a tiny just a tiny bit. Um, uh, it's it's just you know it's just present there. I mean, there are so many there are so many films and and uh, and songs that have associations. It doesn't ruin them forever. I mean, I I I, uh, I dated a girl for many years who loved Neutral Milk Hotel, and Neutral Milk Hotel was a was a band um, of contention between us because. I never fully listened to the records. She would play them. She played them constantly. She played them in her car, but she was one of those people that, although she liked having music on all the time, well, I think this is true for a lot of people. She kept the volume down low when I was in the car. She probably cranked it when she was driving around by herself, but I would get in her car and she'd turn the volume down. Now, she wouldn't turn it off. Right, just be a very subtle background. I do that if I'm listening to music. Yeah, well, and uh, and one of the, one of my problems is I can't listen to music that way. You know, if the music's on, then let's listen to the music and not talk. Right. And if we're talking, let's turn the music off. It does not. I, I my attention can't handle that. I'm this, I'm yeah. mostly the same way, and I think there's a lot of people who are who are like that. That like background music. Are you are you able to enjoy any background music? Like if you're at a, a restaurant or a nice hotel lobby where there's conversation or something, and and it's like jazz or classical in the background or do you still need to focus fully on that in order to really appreciate it no there's all that music that's like you know trip hop or or the electric slide or whatever stuff in the background that's just like i mean then i'm doing a bad description of that because that's like that's like shitty euro hotel music but there are all kinds of different non-vocal musics that um, it's it's fine to have it going on in the background, but if I if there's a lull in conversation and I start listening to the music, then I'm not uh, then I, that's what I'm doing. You know, you'll have to you'll have to redirect my attention back to you, back to talking. Right. If I start to if I start to hear the music and think about it, and but but with vocals vocals music, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I want to, I, I want to either be listening to it or not listening to it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I would drive around in her car and, you know, neutral milk hotel, the, um, the vocalist, Jeff Mangnum, uh, he's got a, a high keening voice and it's recorded in a way where it's, it's really, um, the voice is really compressed and distorted. I mean, it peaks, it, it, you can hear like, you can hear tape distortion and it's all, it's all tremendously effective, but at low volumes where, where I, wa- I wasn't hearing the music or the lyrics, I was just hearing this guy going, <laughs> and I knew that my girlfriend didn't like my band or at least she expressed no appreciation for my own band. This was always a, a crazy thing in our relationship because she met me I was in this band. Mm-hmm. The band I was in was sort of central to my identity. She 
met me and clearly liked me and wanted us to be together. And she was an enormous music fan, a huge, like very, very publicly uh, um, recognized as a huge music fan. And she was, she was like the most hipster person. (laughs) And yet she never praised my music. She never, she never seemed to, she would come to my shows, but, but as my girlfriend and not as, you know, she showed no, no, uh, fandom. And my sister thinks that she was a big fan and that that she just had, that this was just part of her, attitude and mentality and it was part of our broken relationship dynamic but anyway so i i was always on edge like why doesn't she like it seems like all of your ex-girlfriends have some kind of misconception about you like the one you just said or that you're a ginger when you're not Mm. and that you you make no effort to correct these misconceptions do you know about them or do you how you could I correct that. her misconception that she did or didn't like my band? Well, no, you couldn't, you couldn't yeah. do that. So, but I was, you know, but it put me on edge and to drive around in her car and listen to the, this low volume neutral milk hotel thing that I, that I, uh, that sounded terrible to me. And I, so it became a thing where I was like, ugh, neutral milk hotel. God, it's awful. And she would go, what do you mean? It's amazing. But I had never heard it. You know, I'd never sat and listened to it on my own. Yeah. And so then, then, it, then I was like, kind of, I guess, pushing back by saying, nah, your musical taste, you know, neutral milk hotel. <laughs> and it was only after we broke up that I put neutral milk hotel on in my headphones one night and walked around and discovered that it was incredible. That it was it, just a, just wonderful music and that under the airplane over the sea uh album it was incredibly moving and became one of my favorite things but it was so inextricably connected to this girl and this memory and this time when i was when i was in like when i thought i hated it because i hated the dynamic Mm. but i can still listen to the music i can't listen to it without feeling that tinge without having, having a memory, but not enough that it would spoil a great album. Right. We would like to say thank you very much to Brooke Linen. You know, you spend about a third of your life in sheets. It's about time for a bedding upgrade. And I'm not joking. I sleep on these sheets every night now. And I got my mistake. If I can be honest, was only buying one set. I said, I'm going to try, I'll try the one set. And now it's the only sheets that we even like. We've got like four or five other sets of sheets. We just do not use them. They sit in the closet. They're freshly washed. They're folded. And as far as I'm concerned, they're garbage because the Brooklyn and sheets are that much better. And I'm not saying this to just go and get you to buy them because they really are that much better. It's true. I believe it. And this is the only sheets I'll see. My wife thinks I'm nuts. So now guess what? I'm the one that's doing the laundry every week for the sheets because I insist on having the Brooklinen. They feel great. If you've ever stayed, if you've ever had the fortune to stay in a really awesome like five-star hotel and you've laid on the sheets, you're like, whoa, 
I want these at home. That's the exact same thing that the people who founded this company, the husband and wife that founded this company were thinking. They were traveling and they were staying and they were like, why can't we get these sheets at home? And so they, they went and priced them out and they found, once they did the research, that most bedding is marked up as much as 300%. They said, that doesn't make any sense, but if we cut out all the middlemen and all of that stuff, we can bring this price down. We can, you can now get luxury sheets without the luxury markup. That was their goal. They have achieved it. And they're actually the fastest growing betting brand in the world, over 35,000 five-star reviews. And they don't just feel great, but they look great too. You can mix and match over 25 colors and patterns to make your bedroom look just right. I'm old school. I just went with the white sheets. That's what I did. You don't have to do that. You can do whatever you want. And you're going to love the stuff that they have. It's really, really cool. Half a million happy sleepers and counting. So go check this stuff out. It lives at Brook Linen, B-R-O-O-K, Brook Linen, L-I-N-E-N. These are the, the, the best, most comfortable sheets that I have ever slept in. You can upgrade to yours. Brook Linen has a special offer, 10% off your first order and free shipping when you use the promo code ROADWORK. They're so confident that you're going to love their sheets, their comforters. They do towels too. That they come with a lifetime warranty. If there's ever an issue or problem, you contact them and they'll make it right. But the only way to get 10% off your first order and shipping free is to use the promo code ROADWORK at brooklinen, B-R-O-O-K, linen, L-A-N-E-N, brooklinen.com. They really are the best sheets ever. Go check them out. And thanks very much to Brooklinen for making this show possible. But you know, I've never had, and you may be like this, I don't know. I think a lot of people are, but I never had in really in any of my relationships a shared love of a media. Like in high school, my first girlfriend and I identified the song Sea of Love by the Honey Drippers, the cover of the song Sea of Love by the Honey Drippers. Right, I know it. As our song. Uh-huh. And what that what that meant was that when we were at all school dances or when we were at cotillions or when we were at uh I mean, you know, when I was in high school there were a lot of dances. We went to dances all the time. Every weekend. We went to dances to the point that if there wasn't a scheduled dance we would sometimes pile in our car and drive around looking for dances and there would be dances. Yeah. We would, we drove up a couple of times on like sober house dances and you're driving past a place and you look and you're like, they're having a dance and there'd be six of us in the car and we'd pull into the parking lot and get in there and we just, that seems crazy now, but um, we would go to dances and no matter where we were in the, in the, in the hall, you know, if she was dancing with somebody, I was dancing with somebody, if, right. if, uh, whatever, if, if, if we heard those opening strands of sea of love, we would Im- you immediately to, you'd st- have to start, right? Yeah. We, we would, she, she would head to the center of the dance floor. I would head to the center of the dance floor and we would look for each other and meet, meet each other there to dance to our song. But that was the last time I ever had a song with someone and I never in the course of any relationship had 
a movie that was our favorite or a mm. band that was our favorite or any kind of thing that we consumed together and recognized that the consumption of it was something that we shared in. And I know a lot of people probably think of their relationships in terms of the, you know, their favorite movies together or their favorite bands. I mean, I, there are plenty of people that, that put the long winters in there. The long winters play a relation or play a, a, a role in their relationship. Mm-hmm. That the, the the two of them either met at a show or bonded over their love of the band or played a song of ours at their wedding, you know, like really close, uh, like the, 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 the music or the movie or the TV show, like it, it's something, it's, it, it's some glue in their emotional lives where the, the shared love of it, I guess is, is further evidence to one another that, that they belong together. And I never, I've never had that. I've never I've had never, it either. Never. Really? I don't, yes. I, I've never had like, this is our song or, uh, in, in any way, an experience that indicated or meant to us that like, this was like a shared, like, no, I've really? never had it. Yeah. Never. Never. Unless, unless it was like a joke. Like I remember in high school, there was a girl that I was dating and, uh, we, we both really disliked a song. And so I used to jokingly insist that that was our song, but I mean, never for real. No, no, but I think it's really common. I think, I think for most people that's, you know, like I certainly hear, I'll hear a song and it will definitely remind me of a time or bring back a memory of an experience or of a person. Right. But we never had that shared thing that you're talking about. I've never had that. And I, I, I think of it as, I think of it as a signpost for a kind of relationship that, that throughout my life, I didn't, I knew I wasn't, I knew I had never had, and I suspected I was never going to have, and I envied a relationship where, uh, where the coupling, where the, the, where the sum was greater than the than the parts yeah um that was you know and and i'm and i've always been kind of suspicious of those relationships because i'm so outside them that i can only look at them through a plate glass window like i have no idea what it would be like to be in a relationship like that um it's kind of like I, i remember running into a friend on the street who had been in a really committed like live in relationship. Yeah. Where the two of them, you know, where you kind of just thought of them as like Benefer or whatever. The two of them just, they're inextricable. They're, they're a unit. Yeah. And I ran into this friend. I hadn't seen him in, in not very long, you know, a few weeks. And I was like, Hey, you know, where's, where's Jen? And, uh, and he said, Oh, we broke up. And I was like, what? I can't believe it. Like you guys, he was like, yeah, I mean, it just didn't work out, but I'm seeing this new girl and she's moving in with me. I was like, it's been two weeks. Like you and Jen had, I mean, your shit was so braided together. 
and she not only have you broken up but you have a new somebody and you're and you and you're using the word love to describe your relationship with them and she's moving in like all i didn't i couldn't have done or never had and and i guess couldn't have done any of those things i never had a gen my shit was never braided together with anybody i never said i loved somebody they never lived with me i never broke up with somebody that was that close to me got over them that fast, met somebody else and felt the same way about them. Like every single one of those experiences was, was then and is still totally alien to me. And yet this person is totally as a friend of mine by outward appearances is a normal, regular human being that is like me also a regular human being. And so that was just like a lightning bolt to me uh, to feel like, you are not like you and I are members of the same community. It's not like you are somebody from a, uh, like a vegetarian religious cult on the edge of town <laughs> that I can't identify with. <laughs> right. Like you like rock and roll. You live downtown. You like to get high and, and party and race motorcycles or whatever. Like we're members of the same group except none of your experiences map onto anything I understand. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, and I, I think about, I still think about that. I still think about that because I bump into people, I guess, my, I guess the rest of my life I've been, I've been watching for it and I, and I see it all the time and I, and I can't understand it because it, you would think that that extreme, a difference would preclude you having anything in common with the person. How could you, what would you have to talk about? Yeah. But in fact, I really love that guy. He's like, uh, he's like one of my close pals or was then. And so if, if all of that stuff doesn't create a, a, enough of an experiential gap that, that you wouldn't have anything in common, then what is commonality? That's a, that's a good question. You know, so, I, I meet, I meet people more and more now as the, the younger generation is not only in the workforce, but starting to have life experiences, real life experiences, mm -hmm. not just I'm out of college, but mm -hmm. you know, like they're, they have relationships now, or maybe they, they have had a job for a number of years and like, the idea of the the sort of monotonous drudgery that even even when it's your own business like my, like I have or even when it's something that you like doing something that you're passionate about after a long enough time it it does start to feel like work and you know you're doing this thing that's sort of like work and you do it and you realize after you've done it long enough that like Yes, there can be cool things to do and fun things to look forward to. But like, yeah, at the end of the day, like you're waking up in the morning, you're going to do the same thing essentially every day. And like when that idea is no longer depressing or, or to you and you've just sort of accepted that like, yeah, like this is part of life is, is doing this routine that I have to do. You know, maybe it's the routine you do with your kids when you're putting them to bed at night or the routine you do five days a week when you wake up and drink coffee and take a shower and shave and get dressed and do that, you know, and drive in the same road onto the commute. <clears throat> like once that's kind of been burned into you a little bit, I feel like you, you enter into a different space and then you start to really have 
other things in common with, with people that maybe you didn't have before. Like, like what someone who's, who's like our age, somewhere between the, in the 40 to 50, maybe a little younger, maybe a little older range would have very little in common with somebody who was like in their late teens, early twenties. But once you've, you've kind of been on the earth for 25 to 30 years, I think it, that shared experience thing opens up in ways that are surprising, at least to me, because, you know, I've really felt like there was a big gap between people who were in their like twenties, early thirties and, and people who are in their like forties, early fifties. And now I feel like the, that, that gap is kind of shrinking. Does that make do sense? You, do you remember when you, you first had that, um, that you first feeling? had that feeling? Yeah, it was probably late twenties. I, I mean, I remember it very distinctly when I when it started when I started to not feel upset about it anymore. But the 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 routine thing that was very early for that was like because I was working at a full time job before I graduated from college. Oh right. Um. So for me, like that drudgery stuff that kind of settled in. You know, twenty one, twenty two years old. I was like, oh. So this is what it is. But by the way, I thought it was great. I was thrilled to death because I absolutely nothing. And I don't want to interrupt your, your point or your question, but for me, the, as, as, as young as I can remember, as far back as I can remember, all I ever wanted was independence. I didn't like, uh, I didn't like being under somebody else's thumb I didn't like having to do certain things because I had to do them and saw no value from them. For example, school or homework. I really, really did as little as I needed to do to get by. I was never excelling for the sake of excelling. I never took advantage of the educational opportunities that were before me in college. Like I remember, you know, I was, I was, right out of high school, I graduated high school at whatever, 17, 18. And then I went uh, right to college. And I remember there were a handful of people, especially in my later, you know, when I was focusing on the stuff in my major, that there were people who were a good 10 years older than me, who had maybe even 15 years older than me, who had come back to school. You know, they graduated high school and immediately went out into the workforce, or maybe they, they had kids right away or whatever it was that prevented them from fulfilling a dream that they had of going to college. So they, you know, they worked in the, and lived their life for, for 10 years or more. And now they had gone back to school and they were a very, very different. It wasn't just that they were mature, but they were there to really, to learn. They hmm, were mm-hmm. in the class. And like, I remember this one technical documentation class in my, in my tech writing major. And one of the things that we were supposed to do in this class was to keep a journal And the journal was about the projects that we were working on. Because at this point in our senior year, we weren't just getting assignments. We were doing what was like an internship where there would be a company that would need some kind of software manual written. And this, our semester project was to go and write some documentation in the real world, but we were supposed to journal it. And I thought this journal is garbage. I don't want to do this. It's stupid. What do Hmm. I need to do that for? It's not helping me. It's the stupid teacher wants it. 
And I would do the absolute bare minute, you know, the day before the thing, I'd be fabricating journal entries the day before it was due, going back months, you know, trying to like make it seem like I'm really learning stuff here. Well, I didn't care about any of that. I just wanted to graduate and get the hell out of there. I just wanted my passing grade, let me out. And there were other students who were return had returned to college who were like, this was like important. And their journal was like, heartfelt and they shared like all these details about what they were learning and their thinking process and their questions. And like they would refer back to their previous journal entries and their next journal entry. And it was like what the teacher wanted and they were getting A's and I was getting a C and I just thought it was complete crap. Mm. But I realize now that if I had gone into college, especially with a, a very different mindset of like, I want, I'm here to learn something. I'm not here to just push through it so I can do the thing I really want to do, which is work and be on my own, be independent, which was true. I mean, that was what I wanted, but I wanted it so bad that everything else was just a means to an end. You know, I didn't take very much or any enjoyment out of the educational process, out of the, out of the fact that I was in college and that I had this really great opportunity to to meet interesting people and hang out and do interesting things. It was just like, when's it, it was like detention. When's this going to be over? When can I do the thing I really want to do? Cause this isn't it. And these people who were 10, 15 years older than me, they had come back and they really, they got it, you know, and what they took out and what they got out of that same exact experience sitting next to me in the same class was tremendous. This positive life changing experience for them. And for me, it was detention. That's um, not really where you're going, though. No, no, no. I mean, it's it's um, <clears throat> it's interesting because you had this, you had this this goal in mind, and adulthood looked to you to be this this free this place this free freedom place, and and it was, and it has been. But you know, I never looked at adulthood that way. I don't think. No. Were you like dreading it? No, but I didn't. I didn't feel like any of the adults that I knew were free. Mm. When I was a kid, I looked at adults and they didn't seem any more or less free than me or anybody else. So I didn't envy, you know, but my folks were, my folks had very different attitudes about work. My mom was a, was a diligent worker and, um, and a hard worker. And my dad was a kind of a, you know, got by, by the seat of his pants kind of person. But, you know, they didn't, I didn't look at them and the power that their money had and the power that their, um, adulthood gave them and, and feel like I can't wait. It wasn't that I dreaded it. I think I think my goals were always um, I wanted to be recognized as a path to being left alone. I knew that I couldn't just be left alone because I think if you I think I felt like if if you were rich, if you were born rich, you could figure out a way in which you could be left alone. 
you would just tell everybody to leave you alone mm-hmm. and you wouldn't have to go do, th- you wouldn't have to interact with people that you didn't want to because you were rich, not being rich. You needed to find a different path. And I think like my mom's path was that she worked. If she worked hard, then she could, then she could end up being left alone. Mm hmm. And that was, she firmly believed that was the path. If you want to be left alone, then work hard. Mm -hmm. Because if you work hard, then nobody notices you and nobody takes you to the woodshed. You get to pretty much set your own tempo because you're working hard. It It makes people leave you alone. But that didn't, that was not the path that I wanted. I didn't want to work hard in order to get left alone. Part of being left alone was that I, you know, I, you working, getting left alone because you're working hard is just, your boss is still there. He's still walking around looking over your shoulder. He just stops looking over your shoulder because you consistently are working hard, but that doesn't, that wasn't what I needed. And my dad had, um, you know, my dad got, had the power to be left alone. I just felt like he squandered it. Hmm. So I, so what I, what I felt was that if I could get recognized for something, if I could get recognized as like the acknowledged, um, not master, but the, you know, acknowledged as necessary for the world as like, oh, he's, he's great at tennis or, or, uh, you know, if you, if you found a skill that wasn't just that you were a good worker, but like a, like a, like a talent, I guess. If you, if you inhabited a talent, I had this perception that like, well, if you're a great tennis player, people can't tell you what to do. You're because you're a great tennis player. So right. if they need, if they need a great tennis player, then you're the one. Like left alone is maybe the wrong thing. Not tell me what to do <clears throat> was maybe a, was maybe a better description of what I was looking for. But you know, I didn't want to be a I didn't want to be a failure. There are plenty of ways to to arrive in the world and and have people leave you alone and not tell you what to do where you are where you don't contribute to society and you're just you know you get some some job or some life path that requires the very minimum out of you. But that's not what I wanted. I wanted to, I wanted to help. I wanted to contribute. I just didn't want to be told what to do or have anybody watching me. But I didn't, I didn't feel like there was a, that you crossed over a line into adulthood and suddenly you were there. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a question of, uh, I do remember that thing you were describing though, where all of a sudden what had seemed like when you're a kid and you're nine, 10 year olds seem like they have a lot more hmm. access to things. <laughs> yeah. And when you're 11, 13 year olds just seem like they have so much more going on. And when you're 15, it's the same for 17 year olds. And when you're 18, it's 21 year olds. And when you're 21, it's 24 year olds. And then you get to be 24 and you realize, oh, that's, 
not true anymore. 24-year-olds and 28-year-olds and 32-year-olds and 38-year-olds are all just kind of living in the same mix. And I think it's I think we hear now from young people the same thing that I think we felt at the time. You know what what's interesting about millennials is that they are um they feel picked on but they're also the most like we hear their voices a lot more than anybody ever heard our voices. Yes. And so when I was 24 and I was super confused about how the hell you get anywhere. I don't have any money. I don't have any opportunity. I don't know how to do all these things, but I have all these thoughts. I want to be accepted in the world. I want to be embraced. I want to be given a job. I want to be trusted. And I, and I, everywhere I looked, there's just no path to get from this place where I know I'm capable. I know I can do things. I know my ideas are good and, and just trust me with something, hand me the keys to something, even something small. Just let me do what I know I can do. And the world was just, just completely ambivalent shrug or just indifferent. The world didn't even hear me because there wasn't any place for me to express that. And so what you end up doing is you express it by getting drunk or you express it to your friends in the form of angsty pop songs or, or whatever, or you express it in terms of, I think a lot of people express it by working, working, working really hard at something. Mm -hmm. The, The current generation can express all those feelings and be heard not only by lots of people, their own age that they don't know firsthand and have those feelings reinforced and, and, uh, faved, mm-hmm. but also people that are older than they are that would, that don't know them, you know, just the world at large, here's that voice now. And I think it's, it's hard for millennials to understand that's how exactly, exactly how I felt, except I didn't have anywhere to, I didn't have anybody to talk to. No one cared. No one my own age cared, let alone somebody that was 50 years old. Right. Um, and somehow I found a path from 24 to, to 38 where I, where I, I didn't have any, it's not like I discovered a trove of resources and it's not like anybody really picked me out of a crowded dance floor and said that one, you know, I just kept doing what I was doing and little by little, right. It never felt like a path or a plan. But what I remember was that feeling that, that at 24, 25, what now was also missing was that feeling that you have in high school where if I just do, if I just get to the next level, then I, you know, I'll be, things will be getting better. Things will be better when I'm a senior than, than when I was a junior. But when oh, you're 24, right, right. you realize, oh, things aren't going to be better when I'm 25. Like I'm working in the same place as 38 year olds. And they're getting paid more, maybe, but we come to the same job every day. Right. In fact, it, not, you know, it might get it might get worse between thirty three and thirty five. You a lot worse, right? Yeah. Or I mean, because if you're thirty five and you're going to work every day with someone who's twenty two, um, you're also conscious of the fact of like, well, I'm not going anywhere. Right. <laughs> like my, I'm not this person's teacher. Um, I'm their coworker. And that's the crazy ass thing. 
that 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 realization that you you know they push you out of school and then you're just in this pool right and there are, there are all kinds of baby boomers right now who are who are just finishing up their careers kind of clinging to jobs somewhere they never became managers and they're you know they're working and i'm sure their boss is younger than they are and their boss's boss is younger than they are mm. and that's got to be that's a weird feeling i'm sure and it's probably weird for their boss and their boss's boss like i don't have anybody i don't have any 65 year olds working for me and i don't work for a 65 year old i don't work alongside a 65 year old so 65 year olds are only people i encounter in line at the grocery store like i don't have any exposure to them mm-hmm there i there i know there are some listening to this program but i never spent any long period of my life in an office where where my age you know where i started off in the office as the youngest and then i was in the middle and then i was older and watched people come and go watched my responsibilities ebb and flow that feels like a really interesting way to graph your life, to think about it, to have to have a sort of daily reminder of like, oh, I got there's a new boss and he's younger than me, and how, however I feel about it, it doesn't stop being true, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna quit over it. So eventually, I have to reconcile myself to it and you know somebody like me that's prone to that's prone to feeling a lot of status anxiety anyway yeah but that would be hard that would be hard because age at least when i was growing up age was so directly connected to and in my case, because I was younger, my the fact that I was the youngest person in the room was always connected to the, that feeling that I was exceptional. Because I'm the youngest person in the room, and yet here I am. That was that was a part of feeling like a you know a smart kid, and and gradually becoming a middle aged person, not the youngest person in the room by far. I'm not even the youngest person in this room, Dan. No. I'm the oldest person in this room. By by a little. It's uh it's I ne- I never became somebody who felt like accomplishment and adulthood and all these things were where the I and I, I've never felt like the ground was flat. I still want to know how old somebody is. I factor that in to how I feel about them. If some, I mean, a good friend of mine just had his 50th birthday and he's six months younger than me. And that factors in to how I think about him. Um, even though I have, I have plenty of friends that are 30 years old. Yeah. 
I do a podcast with a guy that's 31. Um, but why does it matter? I mean, why do, why do you take that into account? What, what difference does that make? Well, uh, some of it is tied to that, that, thing baked into me in childhood that I'm nine and all the other kids in this room are 11. And so that's proof. That's, um, it's, it's, it's exactly the thing where I felt like you should leave me alone. I should be, I'm, I have shown you right. That, that I can, as a nine-year-old can hold my own in whatever this contest is with these 11-year-olds. And so I should be given a pass, right? Or, or like stop nagging me. Yeah. So some of it's in that all the way back. And that's affected me all these years. But now at and I don't remember when it was that I started to feel like age and experience um, added up to something. But but it probably was the turn of the um, the turn of this most recent generation coming coming online and and having such strong feelings about how things should be because the you know when generation y or whatever first arrived they just were like us they were just younger and and liked other things you know they had tv shows that were different than our tv shows but they're they were like the older millennials or whatever the people born in 1980 they felt just like a kind of extension of the way Generation X thought and worked. Uh, it was this, you know, and 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 my generation had been, were had been watching this generation that that we were, that we were being told even when they were in school, that this was the generation that had never been told no. There were all those think pieces about it in the mm-hmm. Atlantic magazine. Right. About the 15-year-olds that had never gotten a bad grade and were raised by a generation of parents that that um, didn't have backbones or whatever or thought right. that, you know, were the type of people that wouldn't tell their dog no because they, did, they didn't want to destroy the dog's spirit or whatever. Right. Yeah. You know, there was all this there was all this sense that there was a generation on the horizon that was being raised according to a a philosophy of teaching and of parenting that was, was being held by people at the, at the time that were my peers effectively, but that, that we recognized was, was, was troubling in, in, in the, in, in the terms we use now, that was problematic mm-hmm. because it was a parenting style that was based on a theory of the world, right? It was a theory of the world that had decided that 
in the nature versus nurture argument that uh, that we were going to act like there was no nature component, that it was all nurture. We were going to make a generation of super kids based on how we raised them and taught them and encouraged them or didn't. And educational philosophy followed this same pattern of like, we no longer allow kids to feel bad. So we never, so everybody gets a ribbon. You know, this is all, this is all well, well argued. And, and, uh, but, uh, but I remember feeling it coming and going. And, and at the time, I think as a, as a suspicious and dubious leftist media critic, I said, it can't be that bad. Don't, you know, like kids always turn out fine. But when that generation came online and had, it wasn't the strong opinions that were unfamiliar. The strong opinions were the same as my opinions. It was the, the, the just, um, conviction that they mattered conviction that their strong opinions were novel or that no one had ever had them or that they just needed, you know, that the fact that we had failed to enact righteous laws was a, was our failing, you know, that the, that the world was a shit show because you and I had failed and now it was their turn at the, at the ripe old age of 20. Mm -hmm. That was the moment that I, that I started to feel like age mattered because just, just because I'd seen other, I'd seen other things. I'd seen people try and fail. I'd seen good people try to do good things and have those attempts fail so many times that I took umbrage at the suggestion that the reason the world was bad was that nobody, that we just didn't have good leaders or that nobody had tried or that the Democrats were corrupt or whatever it was, you know, whatever the, the, the current logic was about why we needed to turn the keys of civilization over to a bunch of 22 year olds. Um, and I, and then I looked, I looked at my own generation. I looked at, people and realized that age had not made us any wiser. It wasn't that we were running the world really well because we were more knowledgeable. It was just that we recognized how hard it was, how much harder it was than it might seem to do good, to do anything. And that being mad about it, never made it easier for us. Right. Being, uh, unforgiving or unsympathetic never made it easier for anybody. That history is full of examples of generations that come in and think they're going to sweep all the trash into the garbage and start anew. And that those generations are the ones that create genocides. And I, you know, my ageism was not at all a, an expression of a feeling like that we were doing it better at all or had done any, had done it better at all. Only that my ageism was only an expression of a feeling that 
it's so much harder than it looks to be a good person, to be a generation that accomplishes anything, and that all your heroes were, were deeply flawed. Their successes are, you know, the people that we point to and say, like, here are the, you know, Gandhi and Martin Luther King. You know, the, the success that they had, you can measure it in, in banners. You can measure it in the fact that Martin Luther King is in every textbook, in every school. Right. But if you measure it in terms of what did Martin Luther King want, have we accomplished that? Did he accomplish it? Have we accomplished it relative to what? Byron Della Beckwith wanted, did he accomplish it? And did his followers accomplish it? Or, you know, did like we, we tend to lionize, lionize our heroes and exaggerate the, the force of their accomplishment and put ourselves in a position where we say, if, if we, if we had only followed, if we had only all followed our hero. Yeah. But, but really like, where we are today is absolutely somewhat a, pr a product of Martin Luther King's thinking and his work and the efforts of the people around him in the time and the efforts of all the people since then to carry that banner. But we're also in a place that reflects the, you know, the Southern white power revisionists and all the work that they've done this whole time, right? There's no, there is no hero. There's just the constant march of time. And we, we like to have heroes. We like to put Martin Luther King's face on the wall, but really if he had not been there, if it had been someone else or if it had been no one, it, it, it's an argument against the great man theory of history, really which is, which we keep, like, I think the academic left likes to argue against the great man theory of history, but only sometimes, only selectively. Right. And they want to say, like, it wasn't Abraham Lincoln, but they, but they do want it to have been Martin Luther King, right? They, they want to take one great man, they want to debunk the great man theory of history and just replace those great men with other great men. When really it's like the slow march of a million people all trying a little bit to do a little bit better. And so, you know, who gets elected president of the United States right now seems like, um, seems so important. And obviously the, the result in, in the Alabama legislature the other day makes it seem like our, our freedom is under like, direct immediate assault yeah but my whole life it's been like that there's all, every single year there's been some legislature somewhere trying to criminalize abortion or trying to criminalize homosexuality or trying to criminalize it's 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 been a constant war it's not better or worse now frankly and there's and there's and that is insight I think into the fact that we are fighting this ground battle. We're fighting a, we're fighting a battle up at, up in the top of the tower too. But there's, 
but the, the it isn't a it, like being hysterical doesn't either being hysterical about the emergency or about the 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 risk and doom or about the success any success you know any toehold any new person elected any um any new law passed i've watched so many iterations of this feeling that we pass a law that that ensures the rights of some people and everybody goes we did it it's done and it's like no it's never done you didn't do it you know you never march you don't march along and then you, you cross some finish line and it's like well abortion is safe and legal for the rest of time it's <laughs> like no it's still under assault but that also means that like they the other side also feels like it's constantly under assault like we are always struggling and and if you don't have if your generation doesn't have it's a sense that what you're trying to do is a, is mutual what we're all trying to do is get better down the road and the and we're arguing about what better is and that's the important thing not the not the street battle not the not the street fight the 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 argument is the important argument is convincing people at the in the in the larger world the the making the argument for a world for for a comprehensive world and making that argument clearly and and, con, and an argument that is internally consistent so that people across all stripes can say, right, I get it. I get this. I get what we're working toward. And I disagree that I disagree on all these particulars, but like, I mean, we're living in a world right now where we have lost the conviction that education makes um, e that education advances us. Fully half the people in the country don't think that. They think education imperils them hmm. because the people that are doing the educating are suspect, have bad motives, are being run by the Jews. So they don't believe in education anymore. I mean, they believe in educating their children in their own traditions, but they don't believe in a, in the system of education. And that is a, that is a huge backslide and it's not, and education is not itself ideological. It's, it wasn't thought of as ideological until really recently. Education was just education and, and the, uh, the fact that education is now regarded as ideological is as much of, uh, the fault of the liberals as it is the conservatives, because the liberals very intentionally ideological, ideologicalified <laughs> <laughs> education. They did it. In, they did it intentionally. You know, they said there are people in the world that are still racist, that are still homophobic, and we are going to indoctrinate them in the correct way of thinking. And it wasn't just like 
here's math, here's science, here's education, here's history. Mm-hmm. It was, here's the correct way of thinking. Now, I, I, I tend to agree that those are the correct takes, right? That that's the correct take. But I came to that through my own, you know, my own elective process, as a lot of people did. I did not, in when I was five years old, get sat down in a chair and told what to think and told to think something told to think something other than what my parents thought and and taught to think that my parents were wrong about things. I discovered later, I discovered in college that I felt like my parents were wrong about some things. Um, but there was a <clears throat> there was a movement of philosophy that said, no, we're going to eradicate bad thinking in this country and we're going to start at a very young age. And if we get to these kids at five, six, seven years old and teach them about and teach them how we want them to think, then we're going to make the world a better place. But what, but those six, seven, eight year olds went home and their parents said, no, that's not what we think. No, that is not right. And those people at the school are lying to you. And we're going to fight those people at the school. Right. And if you come into this house and tell us about those things that you learned at school, you're going to be in trouble. And so those kids came back to school on Monday and all that work you'd done to try and teach them, the, to try and make them into the citizens of the new world that you wanted, not only did that, is that work for naught, but you've turned that kid into an enemy because you brought, an, uh, you brought ideology into, into elementary education. And so we look at the situation today and we go, who are these Neanderthals, this 50% of the country who are these angry, racist, sexist, bigoted people? Mm-hmm. But in a, in a way, they're our creation. Because we wanted so hard to make the world better and we had a theory that you could do that by by forcing it, by forcing kids to, you know, by, by turning kids into soldiers and send, and telling them to go home and tell their parents, yeah, tell their racist, sexist parents that they're wrong, you know, s- elementary kids. I mean, I, I have a kid in elementary school. I know what they're teaching her and I agree. And so when she comes home and tells me, uh, her new worldview, it's not inconsistent with mine, but I can imagine what how I would feel if I, if I had different feelings and not that I was racist, but just if I felt like, well, now wait a minute, you know, there's another side to that. If I felt like my daughter was coming home and expressing at in second grade, an ideology that conflicted with mine, it would, it would alienate me from the schools, the city, the legislature, you know, it would, it would radicalize me as a parent and I would go to work on my kid and you see it, you see it, you see this, the, the product of it now and this, and so I look at this, this generation that seems to really be doubling down on this idea. I mean, this gen, the, the, the millennials are the ones that were raised in this environment. And so half of them were radicalized from the, from the earliest days in school. 
and their parents supported it and they they became you know they developed this conviction that came from not just being taught their abcs but being taught that columbia uh, columbus was a genocidal uh invader but half of the millennials are furious about it you know the ones that we don't see the ones that aren't on our twitter the ones that are marching in charlottesville right and their parents feel like the world's gone mad and the and the millennials that agree with me the liberals they seem to feel like the only thing to do now is to force it down their throats harder to to make no attempt to understand them to accuse them of racism to accuse me of being a boomer you know anytime <laughs> i say anything online now i'm just like just excoriated as a quote unquote both sides boomer they're so they're so convinced that they know the truth and that the way to make the world a better place is to act according to that truth and to essentially burn anyone that doesn't adopt their way of thinking. And if there's anything my age has shown me is that that is, that is like a profoundly losing strategy. And I don't, I don't point to anything that generation X did or that the baby boomers did and say, we did it better or that we're, you know, we had a superior path all I can see is we failed over and over and we are continuing to fail and you guys are failing too. And generation X, at least in all of our arrogance, never, ever, ever for a moment thought we were doing a good job. Dan, a long time ago, you said something to me to the effect of, uh, you know, was there a, was there a point at which, if we had enough subscribers to our donor feed that, that we would stop taking advertisements yeah, and be strictly donor funded show. Yeah, sure. And I at, think the, at the time I felt like, you know, I was hoping that road work would, would continue to grow as an, as a income stream. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to reduce our options. But Hattie told me the other day that we make, twice as much money from our donors Correct. as we do from ads. We do. And we're, you know, we're doing two, basically two shows a week here because yeah. our donor feed show is, is just as long as a regular show yeah, almost in a is. lot of cases. Indeed. And so I'm, I, I'm wondering like what people think about that. What do you think that, I mean, how would that work if we just said at a certain threshold, if we were making $5,000 a month in Patreon support that we would stop taking ads. Yeah. But at that point, would there be a, would there be an after show? Or would it just an be after a, show? a supported show? I don't know. I don't know. I've and if it was a supported show, would that mean that it was only available to supporters? Uh, 
it, it's um would we keep a lot of the people when i asked them about would you why do you support the show a lot of them wrote in and said i support the show because i want you guys to do a show i'm not doing it for the bonus content i'm doing it for the show itself but here's the weird thing it was only when we started doing the bonus show that we got support that m- measured, that really measured up. Like, yes, thank you to the supporters who donated just because we asked them to donate. But right. it, it really became a thing once we had bonus content. And I feel that there's still, and this is such a great, interesting conversation. I don't know any of the answers to anything. But I think we're really still in that situation where people expect podcasts to be free And they're unwilling to donate unless they feel like they're getting something special for that. I'm not saying I blame them. I'm saying this is just an observation. Um, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? What, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I don't know either because the people that are, that are listening to the show and not the donor feed, Mm. I don't see how they could possibly know that there's an entire other show on the other side of the curtain. We're not really, we don't talk about it very much. We should talk about it a lot. And I think that's my fault. And the the reason is the reason I think, uh, or I'm thinking about it is that I'm talking it, you know, I have a couple of other shows that are now talking about, um, what to give, to donors. Right. The friendly fire program has decided that it's going to do, um, an extra episode a month for the donors. And, uh, we're talking now on omnibus about doing a donor model and a donor feed and what to put over there. And it feels like an extra episode a month isn't quite enough for, uh, for omnibus. But then I realized, wait a minute, I do an, I do an extra episode a week on road work that people don't even, I think the regular listener isn't even registering that it's there. Yeah. And it's an extra episode a week that I, I feel like you and I are both really proud of. Yeah. Very. But if we just, if we, if we said, look, we're going to take this show behind the curtain the day we get $5,000 a month, we're taking it behind the curtain. We're, you know, it's one thing to say, we're going to stop taking advertisements. Yeah. And I think there might be people that donated just because they hate ads. Yeah. But at what point then, if you're, if you're, if you have a, a show that's earning all its money from its donors, why would you not just reserve it for them? I mean, I guess right. it's that it doesn't, that new people don't, aren't enticed behind the curtain. I don't know. It's really food for thought. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you're still recording, but if our yeah, donors, if our donors are listening to this and have opinions about it, they, they should write us and tell us what their thoughts are on the matter. Yeah. Cause I'd like, I, I'd like there to be people. I think there are people who would enjoy the donor feed that aren't really aware of what's happening here. Yes. And I think telling them like, Oh, on the other side of the donor curtain, we answer fan mail. It's not really sufficient to describe what this, what we're really doing here. I don't know. Food for thought, but I'd be willing, you know, I'd be willing to start considering that in a different way. 
Yeah, I've been, I mean, you're, you're very much on the same page as I am. And these are the same exact things I kind of, I think about, like, are we, you know, why? And I'm not saying they shouldn't. I'm just saying, let's throw out the question. Why should regular listeners benefit with that to have no ads when they're not the ones that are actually supporting us, that it's the ones who are listening to this right now that are the ones that are supporting us. They should be the ones that, that get something. And then you can say, well, that's dumb. Everybody should benefit and make the show better. And then the flip side is like what you were saying. What if we moved the whole show to be a subscriber only? That's also interesting, but it, but then it's going to limit the exposure of the show because now you can only listen to it. You know what I'm saying? If, you're a, a paying subscriber. I don't like that. I want everyone to hear it. I want the right. whole world to hear it. Whether we make money from all of them or just a small portion. But you're right. We are doing two full episodes every week, re- almost every week. Yeah. And you know what What can come out of that? Um, how could we make it better? Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, I certainly... You know, we're, we are at the point where we're making twice as much from our listeners here on this show as we are in ads, but I also don't want to like throw away that money either right. until we hit our goal. But if we hit our goal, you know, a, a good, the only, the best example of this that I can think of, uh, and, and one that it started this way and it's always been this way is, uh, my friend Adam Curry, uh, does a show called No Agenda with John C. Dvorak and, they have always been a, you know, support us through donation. Thank you for your courage type situation. And their justification to do that has always been the philosophy that, you know, if something is important and something is good, you should pay for it. Uh, value for value is their slogan for that. And the other thing that that's also true and interesting about it is their whole plan is they do not want to be beholden to anyone they don't want to be accountable to anyone and they don't have to wa- worry about what they say. It being controversial or going anti-establishment or whatever. They don't have to worry about offending a sponsor or what will the sponsor say? Or, oh, we might lose that sponsor or, well, we can't say that how we really feel about X because of spon- the sponsor or whatever it is. They're outside of all of that because they are fully listener supported. And their show has been going for a very long time and it's a great show and they both make a full-time salary from it. That's how they pay all their bills from that, mm-hmm, my, my mm-hmm. understanding. So that it's possible, maybe, maybe for us, maybe not, but it's possible for people to do that. Um, however, their show is totally free and you can listen to it without ever paying anything. But I don't know. I feel like if we hit our milestone would it would the listeners who are paying be upset if we were to reveal the secret episodes you know maybe there's something else to do maybe when we record a show that that people who donate get it sooner or faster maybe uh, by a week or two, even two weeks i don't know i have no idea i don't know it's worth thinking about but i i would like to hear what people especially those who are here support us think i would like to hear that wouldn't you yes so uh, email us roadwork at five by five TV or go to five by five TV slash contact and click roadwork and send us an email and um, share your thoughts. We'd love to hear it.